as Jonathan introduced me, I'm a deacon here at Forefront, and deacons kind of have various responsibilities. Um, I usually, and the awkward person takes photos of whoever takes, is giving a sermon here because they handle Forefront's social media account. Um, I also co-run with Grace and Dorcas, our LGBTQ ministry and Cure Communion, and I'm a proud member of the Brooklyn Heights small group. So if you're in the area, you should definitely come check out our small group. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my family to begin with. Um, so here's a photo of my family when we uh, were in Malaysia. That's me and my three younger siblings with our two dogs that we adopted up the street named Doggy and Blackie. Um, and life is pretty good. Anyhow, so we're in Malaysia, and so we're Chinese Malaysian specifically. Malaysia has many different uh, races. And the church we belong to was actually a church denomination that started in Asia. And it had tons of churches around, particularly Southeast Asia. But we wanted to kind of expand our empire or whatever uh, to Europe and America. And they sent my dad. He was a pastor. He had started a couple of churches. And, you know, America was obviously good for the upward mobility uh, thingamajig. And, but also, we chose America, I think. I was 10 at the time. Uh, because, to be honest, America seemed to us kind of like a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, like a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, violence, gun ownership, just really strange things that we were seeing from Hollywood. Um, and so here's a photo of us in uh, America about a year after we landed. Uh, as you can see, I, I look about the same age as I do then, I was age 11. Um, and these trophies that we have are all softball trophies. Uh, my brother wasn't the best, so it was just us girls who got all the trophies. Uh, and the, the reason for that was my dad was really insistent that we play American sports. So track and soccer were like Malaysian Asian sports. So that was not super encouraged. He wanted us to assimilate and integrate with like white people. And uh, my sisters actually discovered after years of softball that they actually preferred track and soccer. Uh, one of them was recruited to actually run for college, so thank goodness she discovered that later on. Uh, and I was the only one, you know, surprised who actually enjoyed softball. <laughs> the two people, <laughs> you got the joke. Um, <laughs> um, my dad was also very good at languages. Uh, he was very good at accents. And so one thing I remember him doing when we came to America was he would play the radio and kind of practice and study how people pronounced words. And he would say, you know, notice Americans emphasize the first syllable, not the second syllable, which is how we emphasize things in sort of Minglish, Amer Malaysian English. And actually, all of us grew up speaking English. That was our first and only language. But we had sort of pretty strong Malaysian accents. And I remember being conscious of trying to get rid of it. Because, you know, if I, if I start giving the sim and I talk like this with a Malaysian accent, you're going to think I'm not as articulate or as educated. If I talk a British or Australian accent, no problem there. But if a Malaysian accent, then we have a problem. So that was kind of the psyche I had growing up. But the thing I remember most about my dad's advice in Americanese uh, was he would always say, don't be intimidated like other Asian people are. Stand up for yourself and speak up. In the classroom, in the workplace, that's what my white coworkers do. You should learn from that. Now, my dad is, is a charismatic guy. He's like a, he loves public speaking. He was a pastor. And so I think on one hand, he was trying to just rebel against the stereotype of like the quiet, submissive Asian. Um, and I, I think he was also just trying to help us adapt and give us practical tips. But it's interesting to me that he did not say, you know, in America, this is how people talk, and we talk a little differently. So we just got to switch, you know, code switch a little bit to be taken seriously. Instead, he said, 
don't be intimidated like a timid Asian person. Stand up for yourself, like how white people speak. I think the former would have been about how to hustle and how to make it here in America. The latter is about shame, about your own culture and your own people. It's about internalizing the logic of white supremacy. And I say white supremacy, and, and then when people say that, they think, oh, KKK, Charlottesville, and that's definitely some legit white supremacy. Um, but there are other forms I think it takes, and no one really talks a ton about how it's sometimes to use the ancient language of the Bible. Sometimes white supremacy kind of functions like a demon or a ghost that kind of gets under your skin and starts to inhabit or possess parts of your psyche. Um, if you've seen the movie Get Out, you probably know a little bit what I mean. You see, my dad and my mom grew up on the eve of Malaysia's independence from a hundred year long rule of the British Empire. They grew up in a country that was and still is trying to overcome this legal, cultural, and political system that put white people at the top and everyone else at the bottom. Uh, a system in which, although we got some modern education and technology, um, took our country's natural resources and used it to rebuild their country at the end of World War II. And perhaps the most insidious effects of colonialism and a kind of imperialism globally that still lingers on today is just this feeling that white people are superior. And it still lingers on today. I mean, back then you would have whites-only areas and what have you, but now you might have, if you look at the fashion advertisements in Malaysia or in Asia, a lot of them are white models, or they're Asian people with white features, partly due to plastic surgery. Or if you look at the salary differentials between white, what we call expats, and local immigrant and locals. So, just to be clear, I'm not making any personal accusations of anyone in this room. I'm just saying this is the system we live in. And actually, when I talk about whiteness, I'm not really talking about your skin color or your phenotypical features. Um, maybe this is going to be redundant for some people, but race really is a thing that only starts to become invented around the late 1600s. That's the first time we see documentation of people being identified by the skin color as opposed to a national origin or religion. And that's the first time we have a hierarchy of skin color being developed. So whiteness really I'm using as a shorthand for dominance, whoever is a dominant group. And over time, different groups of people are dominant. And this will be particularly relevant later on when we get into scripture. So, back to my dad. So he's growing up, he's the oldest of five, and he's in Malaysia. And his mom, who's this very savvy entrepreneur, managed to scrap together enough funds to send him to a really good university. So of course she picks the UK. He gets there, and his English is not the best, so his classmates kind of make fun of him. Uh, I think one of his classmates said something like, Al, can you pass the sugar, please? And, you know, why would S-U-G-A-R be pronounced sugar? If you think about it, it's, it's just, English is a little weird. Um, but it's also kind of weird that my dad at the time spoke three languages, Fuzhouhua, Kejiahua, Putonghua. And his classmates could only speak one. Yeah, he was the one that was made to feel dumb and inferior. When, and when you're excluded from the dominant group, you kind of, usually people have two options. They can either be like, screw you, I'm gonna stick with my people, bye-bye. Or you can try to assimilate and change yourself so that you can be accepted by the dominant group. I'm not gonna comment on which path my dad took, partly because he might hear the sermon and criticize me later. Um, but. Today I would tell you that he is proud of the fact that he joined the he did not join the International Christian Fellowship where all the other Asian people were. 
he joined Christian Union, which is the fellowship where the white students were. He was actually quite popular, so he says, and became secretary at the time. So, I guess it's sad to me that although my dad grew up in a time, my mom grew up in a time in which colonialism was formally over, they came to faith really in a kind of colonial Christianity. And I don't want to, I'm a person that has a lot of caveats, I don't want to diminish the agency and the choice that people of color make when they choose to follow this faith because they're compelled by its story. I'm not saying, you know, people were coerced or something to believe in Christianity. But I am saying that it is hard sometimes to hold on to this faith when it's been transmitted to you by the people who have colonized you and enslaved you. And I guess it wouldn't be such a big deal in some ways if I didn't look at the books that my dad was, is reading for seminary and I see who's, who's written them. And they're pretty much all written by white men. Tim Keller, John Piper, Jonathan Edwards. He goes to Reform Seminary. And, and when I look at the top 100 largest churches in America, and 93% of them are led by white men. And I look at whose books are being published and whose podcasts are uh, being listened to. And I look at who's getting the speaking engagements and the conference invites. And when I think about the fact that my church in Asia, although it was fairly Asian-centric, the songs we listened to were almost exclusively, uh, we sang, were from this white band in Australian named Hillsong. And the child-rearing books we read were by this white man in America named James Dobson. And so when I think of all of that, although the legal structure of colonialism is gone, the culture of it uh, still remains. So it brings me to the question, why am I here? <laughs> Uh, why am I in this church? Why am I preaching? Why am I saying all this? And it's, good, it's a good question that I have wrestled with, especially since the election. So let's get into our sacred text scripture. Let's look at Paul's letter to Titus. Um, it's the book of Titus, and, his, and I have the verses on the screen, so whatever. And Titus is his kind of friend, a younger mentee, and in this letter, he's giving Titus a lot of instructions about um, how to grow this church in this Greek island named Crete and um, you know what kind of elders to appoint, how families should be set up. And towards the end, he inserts the statement, which he says, which reminds me a little bit of my dad's advice to me. Declare these things, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one look down on you. Now, why would Paul say that? Uh, if you take a very individualistic reading of this text, you could say, you know, Titus got some confidence issues, maybe people are a little bossy. And if Titus was in a small group, maybe he'll be like, hey guys, I got a big presentation next week. I've got to make some big decisions. Can you pray for me? I'm feeling nervous. And people in a small group are like, yeah, don't pray for you. No worries. Got it. But is Titus feeling insecure because he's Titus or is there something larger going on here? And that's kind of the attitude I want us to think about in general, uh, especially when people give prayer requests in small group. So let's figure this out. We see Titus again in the book of Galatians. And uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul's writing about his trip to Jerusalem, in which there's this faction of Jews who want Gentile converts to be circumcised. And Paul says this, but even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So we see here that Titus is Greek, meaning he's a Gentile, meaning he's not Jewish. So what's the significance of that? 
Now, if we go back a little bit to the book of Acts, we see, you know, the book of Acts is when the Gentiles start coming into the Jewish faith, or this sect, Jewish sect, which we will later call Christianity. Um, and it's pretty cool, a lot of things happening, but some tension is emerging. And recall earlier what I said about whiteness being a shorthand for dominance, and different contexts, different people have been dominant. In this case, it was the Jews who were dominant. And I want to say what I'm going to narrate is going to portray Jewish people in a negative light. And I'm just kind of restating what I see going on in the text. But I want us to be careful not to get caught up in questions of, did this historically happen? Is it true that Jews acted this way? And maybe Paul had some agenda, who knows? And I want us to think about the deeper meaning of the text. And the reason why I want to stay from that interp those interpretations, because those interpretations have been used to justify the villainization and persecution of Jewish people. To, if you want to talk about assimilation, literally forced assimilation and forced conversion. So what is the deeper meaning that I think Paul is trying to convey about community, about diversity and justice? So with that frame, let's get into it. So the book of Acts. So there's this tension, as I mentioned, between the Gentiles coming into the early church. And there are a fair number of Jews who are saying, okay, I get it. God's opening this covenant, this blessing to these sinners, these outsiders, because we see God giving God's Holy Spirit to them and we see her Holy Spirit active in their lives. But if they're going to come into our country, I mean, a covenant, then they have to assimilate. They got to get circumcised. They follow the law of Moses. And just as context, why is circumcision such a big deal? It was and still is the marker of Jewish identity, especially if you're a male. Well, it depends, but in any case, it's a commandment by God. Um, God, if you recall in the book of Exodus, almost kills Moses' son for not being circumcised. So if you're not circumcised, you're not part of the covenant. If you don't have a dick, then I guess it doesn't matter, you're off the hook. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a very particular kind of reading. Uh, notice who is left out of scripture. And as an aside, it's interesting to me that so many of the flashpoints between Gentiles and Jews are physical like what food you eat, how your body is shaped. Um, because as an immigrant, there's so many of the transitions you have to make are also physical. What food you eat, um, how your voice sounds when it comes out of your mouth, what clothes you wear, how you hold your body. So in any case, the early church is at this crossroads and they have to figure out the question of how do we integrate Gentiles into this Jewish sect? And Peter gets up and says, this kind of long preamble, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles will hear the message of the good news and become believers. God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as God did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, God has made no distinction between them and us. So the church decides after this, okay, God has made no distinction, has given both people, besides be the Holy Spirit, that Gentiles just have to observe four things. They have to abstain from sexual immorality, they have to not eat food offered to idols, they have to not eat meat that's strangled, and not eat meat with blood in it. Well, it's basically all about food. And some trace these laws back to the laws of Noah, which Jews believe apply to all people, and there's a lot of commentary, but I think what's most significant for us in this context is what's left out of the list. Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, which is a big deal because Sabbath keeping is one of the Ten Commandments. So the significance of this decision is that what it means, I think, to then to follow Jesus and be part of this new community is not about assimilation to the norms or the laws of the dominant group. 
It's about the shared spirit of God that is in all of us. So you notice whenever Paul tries to write these letters to persuade people to change their behavior, he never references laws. He never says, well, in the book of Leviticus, you said this, so we should do this. He references, hey, look to Christ as an example, or think about the fruits of the Spirit, because that's the new shared identity. So now that you have that context, let's go back to Galatians, where Paul's writing about this trip to Jerusalem, and he brings along his Greek friend Titus, who, you know, is uncircumcised. And he notices that Peter, who is one of the key leaders in this church, is acting really strangely. Peter's doing this kind of thing where when the Gentiles around, he would eat with them and hang with them. But when certain Jews would come, he would distance himself and not eat with them and eat just with the Jews. And Peter, uh, Paul is fuming. He says, if you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So if we were to translate this into modern America, American sort of landscape, we might say, why are the white kids sitting together for lunch? Why are the black kids sitting together? Oh, the Asian kids. Um, you might think, why are the white kids saying, what's this like rotting smell you brought? Oh, it's kimchi? Oh, what's, you know, whatever food abhorrence there is, is ha that's going on. And I kind of help but picture Titus sort of going on this trip with Paul uh, and wondering, will people sit with me for lunch? Very simple question. And Paul is actually kind of going ballistic in this letter. He's like, you foolish Galatians, who has be bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? I'm going to repeat the last part. Having started with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? He's arguing our shared identity is about the spirit, not about whose bodies or whose flesh matters more. And he will later say in that same letter that on Jesus Christ there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. He's saying that these hierarchies, in my interpretation, are being abolished. So why are we replicating the same dynamics here in church? Yes, you know, we've got to bring in cultural diversity, all that stuff, but why are we bringing in inequity and hierarchy as well? So we look back now at Paul's words to Titus when he says, do not let anyone look down upon you. A formulation which I prefer a lot more than don't feel intimidated because that phrasing puts emphasis on your feelings and not feeling intimidated versus who the person is doing the looking down upon. We can now read what he's saying as, do not let anyone look down upon you because you are a Gentile, because you are not part of the dominant group. And if he was speaking maybe to the church today, he might say, do not let anyone look down upon you because of your body, your gender identity, your sexual identity, your height, your weight, your job, your lack of a job, your mental illness, your addiction, your physical abilities, what country you're from, whether you're from a shithole nation or not. Because the truth is, even if the most powerful person in the room looks down upon you, the most powerful person in the world looks down upon you, there is still a higher power. And there's a higher power in this and a higher truth. And as a queer person, Paul is not always my favorite, but I really like him when he's bringing the heat like this, uh, when you feel his like, emotions get really riled up over inequity and people being excluded. And I guess passages and stories like this is what brings me here today, what centers me in this tradition and this faith. But obviously we have a lot of work to do if we want to realize what I think is the call of the gospel. So how do we decolonize Christianity? I have uh, very concrete takeaways. And I want us to just feel good. 
or bad. So let's look at our consumption. Look at the theology books, a podcast you're listening to. Who are they by? Especially in the progressive sphere, are they mostly by white men? How do we listen to other voices in the church? I'm going to post some resources on Forefront's Facebook page that you guys can add on and comment on. Let's talk about church. Who's given a platform to preach? Who's an elder? Who's a deacon? Who's paid on staff? Who tends to sit in the front? Who tends to sit in the back? Who talks the most in small group? Who's listened to the most? One of my favorite things I like to do in a group setting is to pay attention to whom people are making eye contact with when they're talking because that's the person they're trying to get approval from. My friend Derek, a Singaporean, once told me, Sarah, I, I kind of did this experiment where for two weeks I just observed my reactions whenever someone talked to notice if I treated someone differently if they were female or male. And I thought, no way I was biased, but I realized actually I was more instinctively dismissive if a female coworker or colleague said something versus a male coworker. And so what if we ran that experiment in our own lives when it comes to gender or race or if someone has an accent or is it looks different? Third takeaway, uh, one of my favorite examples that's a bit more radical um, is in the book of Acts. So the early church has interesting, what I would call, socialist, anarchist system set up where no one had any economic need. I'm not making this up. It's literally in the book of Acts. Because they pulled their resources together. People would sell property and give it to the church. The church would distribute it. And one of the programs that had going on was a daily distribution to widows who, because they didn't have any familial support, didn't have any financial support. And during this great program, you know, surprise is racism. People start complaining, hey, the Greek widows are being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew widows. This is Acts chapter 6. And so the church, the apostles, who are mostly Hebrew, they could have said, whoops, you know, we'll like track our processes better, we'll create a spreadsheet, whatever. Um, But what they did was they appointed a committee of deacons to administer the distribution of resources. And then they didn't do like a 50-50 thing. It was like 50 Greek, 50 Hebrew, colorblind, uh, language blind, whatever. Um, actually, everyone on the committee, commentators say, appears to be Greek because they have Greek names. What I love about this example is that the church realized that the real problem was not about unequal distribution of resources, but unequal distribution of power. And that is where the real analysis has to begin. Last takeaway. This is more towards like fellow immigrants what cultural ritual or religion have you been told to be scared of or to stay away from because it's not Christian, because it's threatened to the faith? What if you explored those areas and figure out if there is a way to authentically integrate it with your faith? And for some of you thinking, it might be like on the borderline of heresy, uh, consider Christmas. The date of Christmas comes from the midwinter festival celebrated by the Druids, a Celtic religion who celebrated it by cutting down evergreen trees and putting it in their homes. Well, consider Easter. There's an ancient Babylonian goddess named Ishtar, the different ways of pronouncing it, who is the goddess of love and fertility, and her symbols were eggs and rabbits. So I'm saying is that the Europeans have been doing this syncretism game for centuries, and we've been missing out. We've got to get into action, and... And to ask questions, is the Christianity receive a neutral Christianity, or is it something that has been colored by the context of those who have passed it on to us? And what do it look like to claim a more authentic version of our faith? Very lastly, I think of my dad and my mom and how I wish they were here. Um, they're not here partly because it's a long commute and partly because they live in the Bronx, uh, Riverdale, and partly because they disagree with 
this church's stance on LGBTQ people. But I wish they were here because when I think about the liberating force and the power of the gospel, I think of people like them and my dad and my mom and how I wish that all of them and all of us could truly be free. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together um, to be reminded of your truth. Amen.